do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there, I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. You can call me Andrea. Thanks for listening to Talk About Talk. This is where we come to learn and talk about all things communication. My goal is to help you learn the communication skills that will catapult your career and enhance your relationships. Because when we communicate effectively, we can be a better manager, colleague, parent, partner, and friend. We can also be a better gift giver, right? Yes, gift giving is a form of communication. A significant one, it turns out. Gift giving is common. It's prevalent. It's also highly symbolic. The gifts we give and receive communicate a lot of things about the giver, about the receiver, and about their relationship. My goal for this episode is to help you mostly when you're gifting someone, but also some things to think about when you're receiving a gift. By the end of this episode, you'll have a list of things to consider, and yes, a few things that you can stop worrying about when it comes to gift giving. If you guessed by the enthusiasm in my voice that I love this topic of gift giving, well, you're right. I first researched gift giving over 15 years ago when I was a doctoral student. Those of you who have listened to previous Talk About Talk podcasts may recall that my main topic of academic research when I was a student was word of mouth. It occurred to me at the time that word of mouth, or consumer recommendations about what to buy and warnings about what to avoid, was kind of like a gift from one consumer to another. So, at the time, I decided to study gift giving to help me with my word of mouth research. Well, I can tell you that that research on gift giving has stayed with me. I can't be in a room when a gift is being opened, whether the gift is from me or to me, or even if I'm just an observer. I always go back to thinking about this research. It's like having a whole different lens through which you can observe the gift giving phenomenon. Are you curious? I can't wait to share this stuff with you. Okay, let's do this. First, context. You know that feeling when you give a gift to someone and they absolutely love it? It feels fantastic, doesn't it? The opposite is true too, though. Gifting fails. Have you ever put a lot of time and effort into finding an amazing gift for someone, and then when the person opens it, you realize you bombed? I can tell you personally that has happened to me, more than once. And it really hurts, especially when the person, the receiver, is important to me, and especially when I thought I nailed it. It makes me question, how well do I know this person? And all sorts of things. I'm not sure if you ever considered this before, but gift-giving is a form of communication. Have you ever considered that? Well, that is why we're doing this podcast. Gifts communicate things about us as givers, also what we think about the receiver, and about what we think about our relationship with the receiver. Layer on to that, gifts are also highly susceptible to encoding and decoding errors. In other words, misinterpretation, communication fails, can and do happen frequently in the gift-giving process. So trust me, this gift-giving stuff is worth knowing. Some of the research isn't too surprising. So, for example, the significance of reciprocity in gift-giving. Of course we're supposed to reciprocate, right? But in this podcast, you'll learn what the research says about gift-giving dynamics so that you can become a better gift-giver and a better gift-receiver, or at least a more informed one. Let's start, then, with the significance of gift-giving. There is no question that gift-giving is significant. There are two main reasons for this. First, the prevalence of gifts, and secondly, the symbolism associated with gifts. In other words, gift-giving is frequent and it has deep and multiple meanings. 
So researchers in the area of anthropology, economics, sociology, psychology, and consumer behavior have examined this gift-giving phenomenon in detail, and they concluded that gift-giving is a process that integrates a society, and that the significance of gift-giving is uncontested in terms of retail sales alone, accounting for about 10% of retail sales in North America. That is huge! 10% of retail sales. In fact, there are even gift stores, right? We have birthday gifts, teacher gifts, hostess gifts, thank you gifts. I could go on and on. Clearly, gifting is frequent. It is a significant part of our culture. It's also symbolic, as I said. Symbolic of the giver, of the giver's beliefs about the receiver, and about the relationship between the two of them. Gifts can reinforce important relationships, take them to the next level, or even destroy them. Have you ever noticed how gift-giving is a common complaint about people after they break up? It's true, right? And by the way, if you're one of those people that thinks that gifts don't matter, that they aren't significant, well, there's symbolism in that too. All this symbolism is probably why gift-giving induces anxiety. Much of the gift-giving research is focused on the premise that the obligation to give and receive may spark tension or anxiety. Also, there's a strong evaluative component that exists at every stage of the gift-giving process. What do I mean by that? Well, kids compare gifts that they got for their birthday or Christmas, don't they? Even adults, have you ever been involved in conversation where people are comparing the gifts they received from their partners for Valentine's Day? Yikes. Not surprisingly, gift-giving research concludes that inappropriate gifts cause embarrassment, they threaten social ties, and they leave lasting impressions. That's a lot of stress when you're shopping for a gift, isn't it? Then there's the stress of receiving a gift. Of course, we don't want the person who's gifted us to feel badly, but gifts can produce unwelcome feelings of obligation and guilt. Have you ever received a gift from someone and you suddenly felt like the relationship was out of balance? That's partly because gifts are construed as currencies that are exchanged, in addition to being symbolic. Okay, moving on to the gift itself. As I said before, gifts are a form of communication. Gift-giving is symbolic. Gifts impart meaning. When you're giving a gift, you can think of it as being symbolic of three things. Your own identity, your beliefs about the receiver, and your relationship with the receiver. Sometimes gifts say what cannot be said in words. Because of the symbolism, receivers read into the gift. And the giver knows this. Consider two people who are dating. There's the symbolism associated with traditional gifts like flowers or chocolate, or when someone insists on paying for a meal. That's a gift, right? Or the gift of jewelry. That's all symbolic communication. Gifts can express all sorts of things, including things like, I'm interested in you. I have power over you. I'm grateful. I'm sorry. We are compatible. That's a big one. And gifts can even indicate the resources that I have available. My affluence. That's a lot of pressure to find the right gift, right? Well, I want to share with you a gift-giving model that can help us think about this in a way that seems much more rational. In a paper from way back in 1993, consumer behavior researchers Sherry, McGrath, and Levy highlighted how you can evaluate gifts across two dimensions, substance and sentiment. The substance is how much cash you spent, how much you paid for the gift. It could range from no cost, say something you made, to something astronomically expensive. The second factor, sentiment, is the thoughtfulness and or the effort associated with the gift. A low sentiment gift could be a random gift card or a generic gift, like say a teacher's mug. Examples of high sentiment gifts are things that are more personalized or homemade 
or that took a lot of time or effort to procure. Here's Professor Russell Belk, the multiple award-winning York University marketing professor who also appeared in Talk About Talk podcast number 14, where he shared his expertise about how our possessions communicate things about us. Professor Belk also has a lot of published research focused on gift-giving. Here he is describing the sentiment associated with a gift. It used to be insulting, and uh, still is to some degree, to, to give a monetary gift or even a gift card rather than a tangible gift that you've actually sought out and thought about and found to be appropriate to the recipient and uh, appropriate to Emerson said that the, the true gift should be a, a part of you. And so right. you, you bring your skills and your interests to bear on uh, the gift. And from the receiver's point of view, the recipient's uh, point of view, uh, you, you're more appreciative because it really is a part of that giver. That uh, If, if uh, you send your secretary out to buy a gift for your partner, that's uh, inappropriate because you haven't put the time and effort and love and thought uh, right. into it. So I know this is tricky because it's a podcast, and I can't show you this unless you go to the show notes, but imagine for simplicity's sake a two-by-two matrix where you have substance or cost on one axis and sentiment on the other. So there are four boxes. Gifts are either high substance and high sentiment, or high substance, low sentiment, or low substance, high sentiment, or low on both, low substance and low sentiment. Got it? Okay, here's the question. Can you guess which gifts are most appreciated by the receivers? Well, you might be surprised. If you guessed high substance and high sentiment, the most expensive and most thoughtful gifts, you are wrong. The research concludes that gift givers experience what they call displeasure at the extremes. Basically, this means that if the gift is extremely high or extremely low on either substance or sentiment, then they really don't like that. If the giver was being too cheap, or even if they spent way too much. Similarly, if they went to way too much effort, or if it was way too easy. Like as Professor Belk said, you ask your secretary to go get a gift for your partner. That is not cool. Another classic example here is the gift of cash. Cash is so easy, right? But appreciated? Not so much. Of course, there are exceptions, depending on the person and the situation. Back to our two-by-two matrix. Can you guess what kind of gift is most appreciated from the four options? Well, it's actually the low-substance, high-sentiment gifts that are the most appreciated. In other words, the cheap but thoughtful gift. Like the drawing that a child gives her parent, or maybe the homemade meal that one neighbor makes for another. Most people don't guess this right away, but it sounds about right when you really think about it, doesn't it? Personally, I find this two-by-two gift-giving matrix fascinating. And yes, I think about it when I'm giving or receiving or even just observing a gift-giving interaction. It's a really cool way to examine the whole gift-giving phenomenon. It's also a very helpful guide when you're selecting a gift for someone. All else equal, the sentiment is more important than the substance. In other words, it really is the thought that counts. I've discovered, though, that some gift-giving scenarios don't seem to quite fit into this two-by-two. Two of these scenarios are surprise gifts and gifts from gift registries. First, the surprise gift. Let me tell you a quick story. Last December, I was at home working on my Talk About Talk podcast when the doorbell rang. Honestly, I was annoyed by the interruption, but boy, was I in for a pleasant surprise. At the door was a woman who I met just a year earlier in a professional context. We definitely hit it off, and we were starting to develop a friendship. She was at my door with an unexpected gift for me and my family, a bunch of big jumbo shrimps and high-quality steaks. 
What? I was so overwhelmed with her generosity. And it wasn't the gourmet elements of the gift that impressed me so much, although, trust me, it was very, very much appreciated. Rather, it was the complete surprise of there being any gift at all. And this got me thinking. Sometimes the gesture of gifting is symbolic, isn't it? Regardless of the gift. Maybe there should be a third dimension on this substance and sentiment two by two. Or maybe it's part of sentiment, I don't know. But call it the element of surprise or expectation. The second scenario that doesn't fit perfectly into our two-by-two substance-by-sentiment matrix is gift registries. You know, for bar or bat mitzvahs or weddings or for people who are expecting a baby. I read recently that people who create gift registries almost always prefer something from their registry versus just about anything else. Meanwhile, the gift giver might be trying to add some sentiment to the gift, some thoughtfulness, some effort. Have you ever done this before? I know I have. So I was going to a friend's wedding, and sure there was a registry, but I wanted to think of something that they might like at least as much and that demonstrated how much I adore the couple. But apparently, according to the research, that is all just a waste of time. People who create registries just want stuff on their list. So don't overthink it. Just buy something from the registry. Got it? Now we all know. Okay, moving on to gift-giving models. Researchers have also sought to describe the gift-giving process with models. Many of these gift-giving models focus on three main steps, giving, receiving, and reciprocating. So as you can imagine, the model or process of gift-giving is circular. It never ends. The giving stage includes elements such as choosing the gift, creating or procuring the gift, wrapping it, and presenting it. The receiving stage includes elements like unwrapping the gift, identifying it, thanking the receiver, and displaying the gift. The reciprocation includes identifying an obligation and an occasion to start all over again, this time as the giver. In his research, Professor Russell Belk, who we just heard from, describes gift-giving as, I quote, a self-perpetuating system of reciprocity. It turns out there are very few exceptions to the universal requirement to reciprocate. A few examples of people who may be exempt include work subordinates, wait staff, students, teachers, monks, and transients. If you're not one of these, then sorry to say, but you're probably obliged to reciprocate. Back to the model. Of course there are rituals associated with each of the elements. Consider, for example, the element of gift wrapping. How fancy should you go with the wrapping? Do you always remove the price tag? And what about the return receipt? And what do you do with the gift bag once the gift has been opened? Is it okay to re-gift the gift bag? And who does it belong to? Another element is thanking the giver. Is a formal thank you required? Do you have to handwrite a thank you, or is it okay to text? And how soon after the gift was given is the thank you expected? And then there's the element of displaying the gift. Do you have to wear the shirt that your great aunt gave you? Do you have to display the decorative pillow that doesn't even match your living room? And when is it okay to exchange the gift? These subtle but important elements associated with gift-giving comprise the important rituals that become our cultural and our family traditions. They also explain why gift-giving expectations can be askew and why people's feelings can get hurt. The customs that we grow up with inform our gift-giving expectations as adults, sometimes in ways that we aren't even aware of. I asked Professor Russell Belk about this. 
That's right. Any Anytime two people get together, they have to decide how they're going to regard, especially rituals and the way that we celebrate things and right. uh, how we eat and what a dinner is like. And, and, so and is a dinner a gift? And it, it certainly could be. And it, even such things as do you serve it family style or does someone dish it out uh, for you is a different sort of power. Right. Different sort of I hadn't thought of that. Wow. So preparing a meal for someone is a gift? I definitely hadn't thought of that. Do you see what I mean? It kind of illustrates the point, doesn't it? Our gift-giving expectations are formed from our cultural and our family upbringing, and we're not even aware of it. There really is so much to think about in this gifting process, not just for the giver, but also for the receiver. Sometimes the receiver will experience unwelcome feelings of obligation and guilt. And sometimes not only these negative feelings, but even the gifts themselves are unwanted. Sometimes, for example, the giver may pay more for the item than the recipient values it, which is always awkward. And by the way, this partially explains why people make Christmas lists or gift registries. Despite all this anxiety, obligation, and guilt, there is an expectation that the receiver will be gracious. Here's Professor Belk again. The worst thing you can do is refuse a gift, say, I don't want this. Somewhere in between would be re-gifting, <laughs> where you take the gift and give it to someone else, hopefully not forgetting who was the original giver and giving it back to them. But uh, in that case, this is developing as a more acceptable thing to do. It's becoming more acceptable? It's becoming, it used to be extremely insulting, right? Yeah, and it, it used to be insulting and uh, still is to some degree. It's true, isn't it? Re-gifting used to be extremely insulting but it seems to be a little bit more acceptable nowadays, or at least talked about. It's almost a cliche. Nowadays, regifting is even joked about as being environmentally responsible. I've heard of school teachers who put all their teacher gifts they receive into a pile, and then they tell their friends to help themselves. Oh boy, I'm sure it's not the mug from my kid that's in that pile though, right? Speaking of teacher gifts, teacher gifts may fall into the category of what we call token gifts. They are small. Okay. They're not all small. Have you heard about the ridiculous teacher gifts that Manhattan private school teachers receive from their students? We're talking little blue boxes with diamond bracelets. Crazy! Anyway, I digress. Token gifts are small, they are usually less personal, and they're often expected or anticipated gifts that symbolize or communicate gratitude. Hostess gifts may fall into this category. A bottle of wine, some cocktail napkins, some flowers a relatively simple gift that communicates gratitude. You can probably imagine giving token gifts like these to someone that you don't know very well, right? The relationship between the giver and the receiver is always an important consideration, and it's the last element of gift giving that I'm going to talk about. The nature of gift giving changes as relationships change. As relationships progress, gifts can become more costly and more personal. So yes, remember the two-by-two matrix? Well, as relationships progress, gifts typically move from the low-substance, low-sentiment to the high-substance, high-sentiment quadrant. And of course, people misfire with their gift-giving all the time. Giving too much, too little, or too late can strain a relationship. Gifts can also signal compatibility or incompatibility in a relationship. Here's another model or theory to consider in the gift-giving context. Transitivity. Do you remember transitivity or balance theory from school? So positive times positive equals positive, positive times negative equals negative, and negative times negative equals positive. Do you remember that? So assume you're buying a gift from someone you like, someone you like, that's a positive. 
and you choose something that you also like, another positive. Then you hope and assume that they will like it too. That's another positive. So you've got three positive. Your triangle is in balance. If the receiver doesn't like it, then oof, things are out of balance. Maybe you don't know the person or maybe you don't want to know the person. It's about balance between the giver, the receiver, and the gift itself. Since gifts are so symbolic, they can communicate a desire to alter a relationship trajectory. Imagine an unexpected, incredibly thoughtful and meaningful gift. Maybe an intimate gift. It kind of changes things, doesn't it? So again, the gift is symbolic of the relationship and how the giver feels about the relationship with the receiver. Let me start to summarize then. When we communicate with people, we have our words, we have our tone, we have our body language, and amongst other things, we also have our gifts. Gifts are significant elements of communication. That really is a lot to digest, isn't it? Overwhelming. But honestly, I could go on and on. I didn't even touch cultural norms. I guess that's a topic for another whole podcast, culture and communication. Let me now summarize a few takeaways to help you think about gift giving from a new, more rational perspective. First, just understanding the significance of gift giving can help you with your communication and with your relationships. And understanding the nuances of gift giving can help you determine what you should worry about and even what you shouldn't worry about. So what should we worry about? Well, we should seriously consider the symbolism of the gift, but also consider the gift giver's individual situation, their culture and their personal family upbringing. Sometimes we read into gifts unnecessarily when they're intended as tokens, and sometimes we misinterpret based on divergent culture or family rituals. I also hope you'll give some thought to the substance and sentiment gift-giving model with the 2x2 matrix. Remember that people typically don't appreciate the extremes and that the most appreciated gifts are often low substance, high sentiment. What should we worry less about? Well, apparently we should worry less about how much money we spend. It really is the thought that counts, people. And as for those gift-giving registries and wish lists, just buy from them. Stop trying to go above and beyond. Just give the people what they want. Maybe with a big hug so they know you really love them. All right, that's it for this episode. Now, I have a gift for you. I created an awesome detailed summary of the five simple steps to improve your communication. It's available as a free printable PDF to anyone who subscribes to the Talk About Talk weekly email newsletter. So actually, it's two gifts, the printable PDF and the email newsletter. You're welcome. Just go to the website and sign up now, talkabouttalk.com. Please let me know what you think about this episode. I'd love to hear your gift-giving stories, your triumphs, and yes, your gift-giving fails. All right, thanks for listening and talk soon.